0: Setting fire to the stoner stereotype. Sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine.
1: Thanks for joining us on Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. As many of you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, author of over 100 publications, including the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana. I also pen the High Times column, Ask Dr. Mitch. But even I don't know everything about the beloved plant. Today, we'll chat about some new findings with Washington University's Dr. Rick Ruksha We'll also have a new segment of Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism. I hope you're ready for some intriguing science. I'm thrilled to have Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Dr. Rick Ruchia, from the Washington University School of Medicine, back in my old hometown, St. Louis, Missouri. Rick got his bachelor's degree from Rochester Institute of Technology, just a stone's throw from where I'm recording in Albany. He got a master's at Penn State, moved to Washington University for his Ph.D., then got a second master's degree in psychiatric epidemiology. I do not recommend the two-master's degree approach, just saying. Dr. Grusha, welcome to the show. Thank you. When I think of psychiatric epidemiology, I sort of think of disorders in big populations. Is that kind of a fair way of
2: thinking about it? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. One of the major things psychiatric epidemiology has focused on is really just trying to measure mental health in the population, which is something we didn't really know a whole lot about, you know, really until the last few decades.
1: Oh, man, thanks for doing it, because I know those are giant data sets and a lot to deal with. Yes, We've heard a lot about cannabis consumption changing as the laws change, and there was a recent paper in a top journal and said everything has doubled. Can you kind of give us the lowdown on what that paper said?
2: Well, that paper was based on a very large survey that is periodically administered once every 10 years. It's been administered three times. And so it was administered in 2002-2002 and then again in 2012 and 13. So there's only two data points. And over that time, they found that the number of people, the number of adults, we should say, who reported consuming marijuana in the past year had doubled. And alongside that, what they call marijuana use disorder, which is a, sorry, diagnostic and statistical manual for diagnosis, sort of what the clinicians use to assess marijuana problems they found that the rate of that had also doubled in that same period.
1: What's the big deal about it doubling? Why is doubling some kind of magic
2: warning alarm? Well, that would certainly be a dramatic change, and especially if we're talking about not only the number of users, but the number of people who are reporting having problems like, you know, not being able to stop or, you know, using to the point where it's interfering with their daily functioning.
1: And what's your impression of how much media coverage this article got?
2: It got a lot of coverage. It was really seized on by, you know, it, there was a story on National Public Radio, both on the web and on the air. Um, the Christian Science Monitor picked it up, I believe the Washington Post, probably the New York Times, I'm not sure about that, but it was really about as much coverage as you can get as uh, doing this kind of work.
1: And then you and your colleagues wrote a response to that paper, and what was your point?
2: Well, our point was that that finding is almost certainly overstated. So we analyze data from a survey that is administered every year. And the survey we use is called the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. We call it the NASDA for acronym's sake. And it is really kind of the primary source of drug use monitoring data. It's administered by the government. And they use really very sophisticated methods to ensure anonymity in the survey. So people are a little more willing to disclose, you know, both their illegal behaviors or behaviors they might be embarrassed about. So, for example, you enter your responses directly into a computer rather than giving them to a live person. So, you know, you never really have to talk to a person about about using marijuana or other drugs. And that tends to mitigate a lot of the issues associated with self-reported surveys.
1: So if I'm following you right, the first study had people getting interviewed face-to-face, but yours had folks sort of anonymously at the computer.
2: Yes, that's right. And also the, the first study, which was administered in – well, when they administered it in 2002, they actually used interviewers from the U.S. Census Bureau – which is uh, a little bit questionable. So they're using government employees to uh, yes, to give face-to-face interviews about illegal drug use.
1: I got to look some guy who just knocked at my door and say, yeah, I'm using marijuana. I mean, that's basically...
2: Uh, yeah, that's... Yeah.
1: <laughs> wow. And so you guys suggested there was an increase, but how much?
2: 20%. You know, to give you a little more background... I had actually done a paper in 2007 kind of critiquing the first version of the face-to-face survey. And when they administered that interview in 2002, they only found they found a past year rate of adult marijuana use of 4%, which was, you know, really much lower than other surveys were getting at the time. So that number was almost certainly too low when they got a higher number 10 years later you know partly because they stopped using census interviewers and partly because you know let's face it marijuana use has become a little more mainstream and socially acceptable they got a number of 8 or 9% and then they concluded from that that the rate of use had doubled over that period
1: wow okay
2: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: and incidentally how much media coverage did your finding get
2: um outside of the normal blog not a whole lot to be quite honest you know it's it was a little disappointing, maybe partly because we wrote it as a letter rather than a full full fledged article because we were really trying to get it out there quickly, and maybe partly because the media doesn't tend to pay as much attention to good news or, or news that isn't bad, you know hysteria tends to generate a lot of press
1: if it bleeds, it leads, yes,
2: if it bleeds it leads indeed
1: all right well, so what do you think is is going on? I mean, would you think an average between these two are your data? more trustworthy or theirs? What would you think?
2: So even I think what we found, which is that marijuana use, reported marijuana use has increased by about 20%. That may actually be a fact, you know, an artifact associated with what we call social desirability. That is, as marijuana use becomes more socially acceptable, people might be more willing to report it in a survey. So 20%, I would say, is probably the upper limit of how much marijuana use has increased in the past 10 years.
1: As my cannabis radio pal Vivian McPeak would say, we got to pause for the cause because there's flaws in the laws. We'll be right back after this message.
2: More burning
0: issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors.
2: The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Voober vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens.
0: Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at Development.com.
1: Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and
0: I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to
1: resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now, I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown?
2: What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate.
1: <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all
2: set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case.
0: <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com.
1: So Rick, when I look at the details in your data, it seems like the rate of disorders actually isn't the same as it is in the first paper. Is that a fair summary?
2: That's correct, yes. We found a much lower rate of disorders, and partly that has to do with the questions that were asked. The, the two surveys asked different sets of questions. But the intriguing thing is we found even though that the rate of use has gone up a bit, the rate of disorder has remained basically flat. And... That seems to me to suggest that the population of people who are using is changing. So as this gets more mainstream and not necessarily kind of an underground behavior, the problems associated with it are you know, maybe even going down a bit for people who, who do use.
1: That's interesting. I know a lot of my listeners do not really believe in cannabis dependence, and I was curious if there are sort of hallmark symptoms that you think might be important as far as that diagnosis is concerned.
2: Yes. Well, I think one of the things we've learned, at least from animal studies, there is, there is kind of a cannabis withdrawal syndrome that's been seen in animals. And it's not as kind of overt as, say, alcohol withdrawal or heroin withdrawal. And, you know, Mitch, I've, I've read some of the things you've written about it. And when we say 10 or 15% of the population who use has cannabis dependence, you know, that's probably an overstatement. Based on the types of questions that are asked, but I wouldn't say the prevalence is zero. I would say you know there, it is out there. You know there are people who do, do develop dependence, but it is comparatively rare.
1: It's interesting because I feel like the way withdrawal has been assessed in humans doesn't quite parallel. And I, I really agree that the idea that this is anything like opiate or alcohol dependence is is kind of an unfair comparison. You want to comment on that or?
2: Yeah, well I think. It's really been in the last five or 10 years that researchers have found out what, you know, what the withdrawal syndrome looks like. You know, it's really one of the unfortunate things of the way we, we approach drug, drug dependence diagnoses is we assume that the symptoms are the same for every drug, and that's not always a, a good assumption.
1: Well, and I also think about what would qualify as interfering in your work or having your family grouse at you or something might be more important. Does that seem fair to you?
2: Yeah, that's right. And th- those are part of the dependent syndromes is, you know, does, does, this interfe- does the use of this substance interfere with your daily functioning? Well, and do you
1: ever think that the face-to-face interviews are going to lose the stigma around cannabis?
2: I think they are losing the stigma, but, you know, we're still definitely getting some under-reporting when we use face-to-face interviews.
1: So tell me, what do you think is going to happen with cannabis research funding in the future?
2: Well, right now there is money available for cannabis research. A lot of that is kind of looking for problems associated with cannabis use. But, you know, I do kind of hear talk of, you know, maybe more funding for looking at the beneficial effects of cannabis, which, as you know, being a Schedule I drug, there's just a lot of bureaucratic hurdles to doing any kind of, you know, serious medical type research on cannabis use. I've got
1: an acquaintance who's claiming there might be a randomized clinical trial for PTSD in the works. I know you've seen some of those data. Do you think that might be a good use, something worth funding?
2: I certainly think so. Anything, you know, we certainly know anecdotally that there's a lot of veterans with PTSD who are using it. So it seems, you know, if it is a self-medication phenomenon, that's certainly something worth looking into, is looking at it more in a randomized controlled trial type of situation.
1: And I've had a lot of undergraduates who, you know, wanted to get into your line of work. Is there something you'd recommend if you want to be a, a cannabis researcher down the line?
2: Yeah, I think there will be a lot of opportunities in the future. One of the drawbacks, of course, is that biomedical research in general funding has not been great these last few years, as I'm sure you know. But, you know, of course, for the undergraduates who, who do want to get into it, I would say, you know, get some experience doing the research as an undergrad, you know, Find a good graduate program and you know, make sure you're doing something you, you really enjoy. I think that's really really the key to research in general. Is it has to be something that you, you know you like because you're going to be spending a lot of time doing it, especially as you prepare for a full-fledged academic career.
1: That's a riot. And then I know you've got to have a lot of other big data sets lying around. Can you sort of tell us what might be in the works or what we might see published in the future?
2: One of the things we're actually looking at is – what has been happening with adolescents, and there's actually a lot more data on adolescent use than there's on adult use, which is kind of another funny thing about this study that claimed that there was a doubling in marijuana use among adults. We haven't seen anything like that among adolescents. So if there's all these new users, you know, where are they coming from? I don't think there's a bunch of 40-year-olds that are suddenly picking up marijuana, marijuana smoking. Maybe there are, but I don't know. But we're actually very interested in what's happening with adolescents, and I think we're seeing a similar phenomenon with adolescents, is that rates of use are fairly flat, and rates of disorder might even be going down a little bit among the adolescent population. Do you have any conjecture about what might be going on there? Yes, I do.
1: You know, there's a
2: long-term trend towards lower rates of adolescent crime and violence, so basically kids are starting to behave better, and... We might start, you know, there's some questions about why that is. One of the hypotheses is that we've been getting lead out of the environment. You know, there used to be a lot of lead-based paint, lead-based gasoline, and that tends to be better for brain development, you know, not having lead. Lead is bad for brain development. As we as we remove lead, we're probably getting rid of a lot of impulse control issues, a lot of, you know, low IQ issues. And I think probably today's generation of kids are, generally speaking, more resilient to addiction, not just, you know, not just to marijuana use, but to, you know, the whole slew of of addiction problems.
1: We had Dr. Joseph Palomar on earlier, and he was sort of befuddled because it sounds like some of these big data sets don't break the data down by state. Has that been your experience?
2: Yes, it has. That's interesting because I'm very interested in state-level data because one of my interests is in policy, and having state-level data allows you to look at policy and there are just a lot of hurdles to jump through to get access to data with, with state-level identifiers in it. And it has to do with concerns about confidentiality and anonymity. So you can get the data pretty easily, but they remove geographical information from the data.
1: Oh, wow. So, I mean, can you apply to find out what data come from which state, or is there some other hoop to jump through? How would that work? Do you know?
2: Yeah, most data sets do have an application process that you can go through to get the state information. Unfortunately, the one that has been the most difficult is the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which I said earlier is really kind of the premier source of drug use data in the U.S., and that has been kind of on and off access to that particular set of data as far as the restricted state-level data go.
1: Oh man, my conspiracy theorist listeners are going to go wild with that. Well, I wish
2: <laughs> it's not a conspiracy. It's just your, your basic bureaucratic incompetence in that particular case.
1: All right. Well, I'm looking forward to having you on the show again the next time you got something relevant coming out. And I can't thank you enough, Doctor Rick. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Take care. And take so care, Mitch.
0: Long- More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com.
1: Hey, welcome back. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine with this week's chapter in Self-Compassion in the Art of Activism. Today's topic is food and mood. I know what you're thinking, but just go with me. Psychology has finally started focusing more on what makes us happy And an interesting series of papers addresses food and mood. I know, you know, we've spent a lot of time just predicting depression or anxiety and stuff like that. It's time to do the flip side and see what makes good things. Linking food to mood has a lot of intuitive appeal. It certainly makes sense that what you eat might contribute to how you feel. Fans of the so-called comfort foods like mac and cheese might also point out that how you feel contributes to what you eat. So let's just take a look at some of these data as we plan our meals for the day. An intriguing new experiment basically manipulated people's moods and then took a look at what they ate. They had a bowl of M&Ms or a bowl of grapes. Turns out that folks who were put into a good mood picked the grapes more often. Usually they have folks sort of read a list of how words that are sad or words that are happy, or they ask them to recall a happy time or a sad time, and then the the poor neutral group has to read state capitals or something silly like that. But more experiments along this line revealed a potential reason why the folks who were happy picked grapes. When we're in good moods, we might be more likely to think about our long-term goals. It's as if a good mood sort of fires up, our most primal values most people claim that they value their health if that value gets into our heads in a good mood well sure enough we turn to the grapes instead of the m&ms we pick the healthier option now there's a good lesson here for some life choices we all already know we're supposed to eat right but it might be worth it to spend time before a meal getting into a good mood i know it sounds a little silly But what would happen? What would happen if we watched a little comedy or listened to some happy tunes for say 10 minutes before lunch or before dinner? These data suggest it could help us pick healthier foods when we sit down to the table. Oh yeah, and let's be sure to actually sit down to the table, by the way. It's funny how if you wolf it down as you're running out to the car, it's just not as filling. It is a cheap intervention, but it could save us a lot of health problems in the long run. And who knows, you might end up laughing your way through lunch. So we're halfway there in the sense that happy folks pick the good foods, and hey, good for them. But what I was really intrigued by is, does picking good foods make us happy? Wouldn't that be kind of a neat intervention for folks who are kind of bummed out? It looks like it's probably the case. We see lots and lots of cross-sectional correlational studies where folks who say they eat a lot of fruit and vegetables each day, they're more likely to report that they're happy. Okay? In fact, a huge study in the United Kingdom showed that there was almost like a dose response curve, so that the more fruit and vegetable you ate, the happier you were. I know burning issues listeners know that correlation is not causation. You hear me say that every time I'm grousing about a motivation or gateway theory. So the best thing to do, of course, would be an experiment where folks are forced to eat more fruit and vegetables, or not to eat them at all and compare them. We haven't done that yet, but what we have done is take a look at how food one day affects mood the next day. And that was kind of a neat, huge study, basically had everybody write down what they ate and how they felt. Sure enough, eating more fruits and vegetables correlated with happiness the same day as we saw before, but it also predicted a happier tomorrow. The researchers kept track of food and mood for two weeks and each day's fruit and vegetable intake did a good job of predicting happiness the next day. It also worked for subjective well-being and life satisfaction and any other measure of feeling fine. So a great big review of lots of studies says you probably max out around seven servings a day. A serving is different for different foods, but, you know, I hate to say that size matters, but generally one banana, eight strawberries, 32 grapes for veggies three spears of broccoli a dozen baby carrots a big tomato but no need to drive yourself nuts just gather some data on your own and let me know at 420research at gmail.com if fixing your food helps your mood hey thanks for listening to our show here at cannabisradio.com you can also find us on iHeartRadio and iTunes my enthusiastic thanks to producer extraordinaire Brasco and our guest Dr. Richard Grusha of Washington University Medical School. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide.